Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about Facebook removes a pro-Israel page with 77 million followers. Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum, joins us from Israel and Bill Barr and state-run religion. And I'll tell you, and of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. There was a Facebook page just a little while ago called Jerusalem Prayer Team. A Facebook page, a group, Jerusalem Prayer Team, had 77 million followers, and it was taken down recently by Facebook. I want to back up and say that the purpose of this Facebook page appears to be simply to support Israel and support Jerusalem, and Jerusalem in particular. And the Facebook page had these many, many followers, nearly all who are Americans and Christians. And among the reasons Facebook page Facebook took down this page was because it had become the subject of controversy in recent days because of anti-Semitic statements submitted by anti-Semitic people and groups. Ugly attacks on Israel, on the Jewish people, on the state of Israel, all of course related to the ongoing, the very current battle uh, between Israel and Hamas occurring, uh, involving the Palestinians. And so this Facebook page was taken down and the Facebook, uh, the notice to the people who had this Facebook page said they, they took it down uh, because it was, um, we removed Jerusalem prayer team's Facebook page for violating our rules against spam and inauthentic behavior. I mean, I just want to throw that little piece out to say, Facebook resolves hatred, anti-Semitic hatred, not by scolding, punishing, removing, uh, deplatforming the people engaged in the hateful language. They, they resolve it by punishing the people who are putting up the positive pro-Israel message. But the other point I wanted to make, we've been talking a lot in the last few days about what's occurring right now in Israel and how it's just astonishing how there is such a connection between support for Israel and conservatism among conservative circles and support for, the argument is support for the Palestinians. Well, that's the argument of the leftists is free the Palestinians. We actually had a march here in Dallas over the weekend. There was a great demonstration, a pro-Israel demonstration, very large, and then a march through downtown Dallas with signs claiming essentially free the Palestinians. I wanna hone in on this point again before we turn to our guest, Greg Roman. The battle in Israel is not between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It is between the terror group Hamas, who are implanted in Gaza and other places, and using money supplied to them, money and weapons supplied by Iran, which eventually means supplied by the people who supported the Iranian deal, and those, the money flowing to Hamas is used to purchase weapons to fire on and try to kill innocent civilians in Israel. The battle is Israel, the country that actually as every other country has the right to live in freedom and peace, 
and Hamas, which is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. And a last little tidbit I want to mention to you in the first five today. Hamas, as many organizations do, has a charter. Hamas has a charter, and I put a link to it on our website, americacanwetalk.org. If you go to our, our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, drop down, list of links, I actually linked to you can read their charter online. The reason I did that was I want to, I want to be sure you understand, I am not exaggerating, I am not misstating, I am not asserting, making false accusations against the terror organization Hamas when I tell you one of their primary purposes in existing is to destroy the, the state of Israel and to kill Jewish people. Israel just wants to survive. They fire back at the Hamas people entrenched in Gaza because those, the Hamas is sending rockets in to Israel trying to kill innocent civilians. So here we have in the charter of, of Hamas, and actually I thought that was amazing, they called this the Charter of Allah, like their Charter of God, the platform of the Islamic resistance movement. Let me read you a few little gems in their words, with they, why they say they exist. In fact, in the opening paragraph where you get to, you, you might put things like a, the preamble to the Declaration or the Constitution, or these really profound what we're all about messages, one they have in there. Israel will rise and will remain erect until Islam eliminates it as it had eliminated its predecessors. This is the, the actual charter of Hamas that is pummeling Israeli citizens with rockets. The charter goes on, it's very lengthy, 48 pages, I printed it out, uh, but other little segments, Islam, Islamic uh, resistance movement erupted in order to play its role in the path of the Lord, joining hands with all jihad fighters for the purpose of liberating Palestine, which is Israel, um, for our struggle against the Jews is extremely wide-ranging and grave, so much that it will need all the loyal efforts we can wield to, follow, to be followed by further steps and reinforced by successive battalions. The entire purpose of Hamas is to establish, essentially, be part of the effort to establish the Islamic Caliphate to bring forced submission to Islam around the world. And at the very moment that we're all watching from Israel and watching Israel from America and recognizing that bombs are dropping in cities, in homes, in synagogues, in public schools, coming from Hamas, Hamas is not doing this as the left tries to claim because they really, really just want to free the Palestinians. They really, really want to dispute a little bit about land over there. They want to destroy Israel. And once you get that straight, every time you hear someone say, well, you know, I really feel sorry for the Palestinians. Yes, okay, you can feel sorry for the Palestinians. But the, ent the entity that is victimizing the Palestinians is not Israel, it is Hamas. It is ultimately Islamic Jihad that is victimizing the people of pa the Palestinians. And if you are concerned about them, you ought to stand up against Hamas and against Islamic Jihad. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I mentioned the start of the show, we have a guest joining us. He's actually joining us by Skype, and it is very fun. He's actually in Israel. His name is Greg Roman. He's the director, as you can see, director of the Middle East Forum. And he is joining us to talk about Israel, and he's joining us from Israel. And um, I'm just very excited because this, this is one of the top stories ongoing, both the thing I mentioned at the start of my first five, 
the taking down this one Facebook page, but the larger attack by social media on any voices trying to lay out and spread out the truth about what's occurring in Israel. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Greg Roman. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to see you, happy we could connect. Yes, and actually, it's 11 o'clock at night there, isn't it? Yeah, I have your program now and Armstrong Williams in three hours. So I'm uh, fully for today. But I'm glad to discuss this multiple times. It's a very important subject. It most certainly is. So I'm not the one keeping you up really late. That's somebody else's fault. Okay, great. Armstrong in D.C. Okay, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, well, we'll start with, because I've mentioned uh, the um, to our listeners in the past, um, that the uh, Middle East Forum, but can you just tell us what the Middle East Forum is just for our listeners? Sure. So we've been an organization that focuses on philanthropic, operational, intellectual pursuits surrounding American policy in the Middle East. And we've been like that since uh, 1994. Now, the uh, general idea here is, is, is that we combine those three things to take American policy the way it's existing today and try to chart strategies to get us where we want it to go tomorrow. So whether it's the Iraq War, America's positions towards mm-hmm. the Arab or Arab Spring, depending how you categorize it. What do we do about Iran? And most importantly, and most recently right now, the Israeli-Arab conflict. How do we find solutions to make sure that America is safe, but also so that America's allies are protected under that security umbrella they expect of an alliance with the United States? I love it. I meant to say a little more in introducing you. So I mentioned Greg Roman, uh, director of the Middle East Forum. He's previously served as director of the Community Relations Council of the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh. 2014, named one of the 10 most inspiring global Jewish leaders by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, served as political advisor to the Deputy Foreign Minister of Israel, and worked for the Israeli Ministry of Defense. Frequent speaker at venues around the world and appears on television, The Hill, The Forward, The Albany Times Union. That's almost my hometown paper. Pretty close. Um, And also attended American University in Washington, D.C., and Interdisciplinary Center of Herzliya, Israel, where he studied national security studies. So uh, I love it. You you have a great resume. You're well prepared to uh, defend Israel. I want to ask you just to start with, because you're already over there right now. First of all, how long have you been there in this at this time? So I got here right when the ceasefire was coming in place. Tried to get her earlier, but the airport was closed. Had to go by way of the uh, United Arab Emirates, actually. And thanks to a peace accord that was put in place back in September, there's direct flights from Dubai to Tel Aviv now. So that was an option. And beyond that, I was able to have the last four or five days speaking with Israelis, speaking with the Israeli government, getting the feedback of military leaders. And I've got a pretty good idea on what the consensus positions are and where there's division regarding how Israel fought this conflict for 12 days with the Hamas. Great. So then I am ready to dive in and ask you all about those. So to start with, uh, there is a ceasefire right now in place. Is that, is that holding right now? It's holding right now, but there's an eerie quiet between both sides. You see that a poll was taken about an hour after the ceasefire was announced for the Friday news, which is kind of like the uh, Sunday morning broadcast, but the evening version. If we were to look at how they do it in the States versus how they do it in Israel. And 73% of the Israeli public expressed a sense of dissatisfaction with the fact that the government was announcing a ceasefire not going further to hold Hamas accountable. And there's a variety of reasons for why the government may have entered that position. Uh, U.S. pressure, uh, international pressure, pressure from the Egyptians, which actually would be a legitimate reason to enact the ceasefire. But right now the public is observing this eerie calm 
But I think that the sense that there could be an explosive uh, upbringing of the conflict again could happen any day. So we're really sort of in a, a no-go zone, if you will, of what's going to happen next. And that's largely going to be dictated, I think, by the Hamas rather than Israel. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, years ago on this show, I had a, I think I mentioned before, my husband has a business partner who's an Israeli citizen. So my husband's traveled to Israel many times. I've been there twice and, and he's, you know, got just a lot of different contacts. So one person we had in the show um, years ago was a woman who was actually a television reporter in Israel. And it was during one, th one of the Intifada thing where they had uh, random bombs going off. And she was talking about, you know, her kids saying to her, can't we go to the beach this summer? And she was explaining, you know, well, the reason we can't do that is because there are no bomb shelters close enough to where we go. We can't, we can't get away in time. I just want to make that point. I think it's very hard for people in America, certainly, to envision living somewhere where you are living in a modern, and I love Israel, a modern state, a, a, a stable, cultured Western society, but in these when you are dealing with Hamas and their, their presence in Gaza and with just uh, surrounded by countries that aren't always friendly, that notion that you always might be under attack and you always might ha be having, you know, need 15 seconds or so, I think it was, to grab your kids and get to a bomb shelter as bombs start raining again. I think it's almost impossible for people in America to understand that, to relate to that. And then I guess then I'm getting at it relates to why many people in Israel might feel a little bit concerned about a ceasefire because it, it appears to have been entered without any concession by Hamas that they will stop attacking. Is that in the ballpark of accurate? I think so. And I think if we look at the words of Clausewitz, the famous military historian, he said that politics is the continuation of war by other means. I would go so far as to say that the peace process has been and will be the process of continuing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict between wars. So when you look at the situation of your friend, and she's on the beach, and she has to worry not just about where her kids are or what's going to happen in terms of their, if they are in a moment of heightened tensions between Israel and the Palestinians, but the fact that she, even have to, she even has to have that notion go into her head when she's trying to provide family enjoyment. No Israeli citizen, no civilian around the world should live with a sense that one day there's peace and the next day there may be war, which really gets to the crux of the issue regarding the ceasefire. Israel had the opportunity, and I think would have had the Casus Belli, the rationale, and the raison d'etre to go into Gaza and to really eliminate the Hamas once and for all. Or if not going so far, it would have had the ability to get rid of its rocket launching capability. The rat line between Iran and Gaza, which was the main provider of Hamas's weaponry, largely ended when Sudan entered into a peace agreement with Israel last year. Most of the rockets were taken from Iran across the Arabian Gulf into Port Sudan and then up through the Sudanese desert into the Sinai and into Gaza. That supply line doesn't exist anymore. So if Israel wanted to go so far as to eliminate the rocket launching capability or get pretty close to doing so, I think they would have had the support of the Israeli public. And had they done that, we wouldn't have to be worried about that threat as much today if there had not been a ceasefire versus where we are now, but the fact that hostilities ended, at least for this round, and now Hamas has a chance to rebuild again, even though it may be less than they had prior to 2021, there's still going to be a threat there, and they still have over 10,000 missiles pointed at Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. It's an untenable situation, 
and I think you'll see a fifth round of conflict sooner than later. Greg, we're speaking with Greg Roman, who's head of Middle East Foreign. Um, Greg, you know, one thing I believe, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. I should have grabbed it before we started, but there was a quote by Net, uh, uh, Netanyahu essentially saying, while the conflict was still ongoing, essentially saying, you know, this time we're going to keep pushing and, and getting to the point perhaps where, you know, what you're alluding to, the potential of Israel and the IDF to really do serious damage to the strongholds of Hamas, the, the rocket launchers. And I'm kind of curious why, what's your reason, what do you think the reason is that Netanyahu would have agreed to the ceasefire? He went on uh, CBS Face the Nation, I believe, last Sunday. Not this, not yesterday, but a week ago. And he said that Israel has two goals in this operation. One is to establish deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. But deterrence only takes you so far. You had seven years between the 2014 conflict, where you really had a war with a ground invasion in Gaza, and this one in 2021. But his second goal was the degradation of Hamas's capabilities and the effort to basically get rid of Hamas's leadership and its will to fight against Israel, to enact such a striking blow to Hamas and its different organizations and supporters that it wouldn't be worth their while to wage war against Israel again. And then when we saw on Monday and Tuesday, Tony Blinken and Joe Biden started really upping the pressure on Israel. But then a call for a ceasefire came from Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the president of Egypt, I think at Joe Biden's behest. And when that took place, Netanyahu thought that the uh, you know, the wall, the political walls of support that support him were closing in around him, and he probably made the decision to stop then. But we have to understand the situation that Netanyahu won, that Netanyahu is in, is pretty precarious with Israelis domestically. Yeah. He's the head of the caretaker government right now. He has the opposition breathing down his neck, and perhaps he didn't think that he had the mandate to carry on an operation, but then this poll came out showing 73% were against the ceasefire. Maybe he'll rethink that if Hamas launches another rocket. Very, very thoughtful answer. Very, very valid. Yeah, um, I have. We've always been supporters of Netanyahu. I just, I think, and the Israeli people. I mean, everyone, or nearly everyone in Israel, you just want peace. You want to live in your country and let other countries do their thing. But they've had, since really their founding, they are surrounded by countries who, uh, out of Islamic uh, teaching, some committed, committed to Islamic jihad as, as what they think is following their faith. They've just forever been an untenable situation. And, um, and, and obviously, they're, they're far weaker as a country uh, if America seems weak behind them, which is why it was so great to have President Trump behind them and so questionable what will happen uh, going forward between Biden and Israel. Okay, I want to actually turn to something else. You wrote a column in Newsweek, and um, I've been on this subject for a long time, uh, which is the idea that there are people in America who say, and around the world, I am not anti-Semitic. I don't hate Jews. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just against Zionism. And I want you wrote a column in Newsweek talking about that. I just want to ask you to, to share because I, I, I think they're one and the same. I, I think Zionism is, Zionism is just the establishment of Israel as a secure state for the Jewish people. And so if you don't like that, you, I don't get how you get to say you're not anti-Semitic. But I would love to have you spell out your thinking. I wrote a line there that when I read it a few times, I said, this is a pretty good line. So I'm going to repeat it right now. Jews are not hated because of Israel. Israel is hated because it is the Jewish homeland. Anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred, going back to 3,000 years ago when we got to the times of David, going back to 2,000 years ago with the Romans, and every single other pogrom and anti-Semitic episode from the Holocaust 
to the riots and the anti-Semitic attacks that are going on in the streets of New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia today. They all come from the same root of hatred, which is the fact that Jews, whether they be in America or in the United, rather they be in the United States, Canada, Europe, or Israel, have this sense of disillusionment from those who have often claimed to be their allies in the good times, but then when it gets to a little sense of maybe there being something going on in Israel or anywhere else, it's the Jewish population and their diaspora communities who are first to meet the brunt of the blame. Whether it's because they're held to a double standard, whether it's because they're delegitimized, or whether because there's just a sense of hatred going back to myths and misnomers that perpetuated themselves for hundreds of years, and they end up facing the basis of this. And the only way to be able to remove anti-Semitism as a threat to the American Jewish community or to the global Jewish community is to take it head on and to get to its root and its source rather than dealing with it as a you know somewhat seminal moment where you have a tweet from the president saying he condemns it or a tweet from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who only last week was on the floors of Congress with the Jihad Squad and the Hamas Caucus calling for <laughs> calling for Israel's okay. destruction. Uh, and now is giving out these uh, nice little 140 character statements of standing for support to the Jewish community. Well, guess what? When you have doublespeak like that, you end up being the source of the very hatred you're trying to condemn. So I think that, like I say in the column, you have to be able to recognize that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism and then moving beyond that, you can have legitimate debate on Israel's policies, but recognize that there's two sides to the story and then don't have some kind of disillusionment when the people that you claim to ally with say they're only doing it because they're against Israel's policies. They're not against the Jewish people. And then they call for the destruction of Israel, which is effectively calling for another genocide of the Jewish people. So if you really want to get into that, I recommend that people read that uh, column at Newsweek today. I could not, I, I love the column and I love that you wrote it. I love the arguments you're making. The column is entitled, The End of the Illusion That Anti-Zionism Is Not Connected to Jew Hatred, opinion piece by Greg Roman in Newsweek. I'll put this up at our website later too, americacanwetalk.org. You really should read it because I think a lot of people get away in America with, with what really is anti-Semitism, but they have some intellectual perch. Well, that's not really anti-Semitism. I'm just, you know, I, I, I disagree with policy X, Y, and Z, so that's why. I support, support, you know, uh, boycott, diversify, whatever the S stands for. Um, anyway, I mean, it's that, that, you know, I support all these things to attack Israel, but, but, but I'm not anti-Semitic. It doesn't work. It's just it's inconsistent with, with um, reality. This will have to be for another time, but I'm going to tell you my uh, kind of ideological or theological thought about uh, some source of anti-Semitism. In the early Bible times, the reason that many surrounding groups uh, came to um, hate Israel was because the Jewish people, or didn't Israel didn't exist, hate the Jewish people, because the Jewish people were the one uh, group who were saying there's one God. There's one God. And, and that idea was uh, an affront to people of, of various tribes who had multiple gods and changing gods or whatever they had. And I think that um, the uh, core idea in Judaism of one God uh, is it inflames people throughout millennia and even up until today as the uh, leftists in America are trying so hard to drive God out of society, out of culture, out of everything, just you know, drive, uh, drive any idea of God out of the public education system and the culture. Um, the the uh, core Judaic, there is one God, uh, 
mindset is just it's enraging because they can't logically talk you out of believing in not you but talk people more broadly out of believing in one God. It has to do with that one God thing. Actually, we, we have a, a couple minutes. So do you, is that a crazy theory? Or what do you think? Well, I, I think when we talk about divinity and we talk about the uh, ecumenical relationship that Jews have with other religions, or even the Judeo-Christian heritage, which has been really in this country, a sense of calling for a state of Israel since Thomas Jefferson suggested that the national language of the United States be Hebrew instead of it going and being uh, English as to distance himself from the king. There's been this relationship between America and Israel, which is based on not just the idea of monotheism, but what I would call ethical monotheism. So you can say that you believe in one God, but ethical monotheism is based on the, the idea that you act upon your belief in one God and his teachings. So I'm not a um, very, let's call it, uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jew, and, and I'm not wearing a kippah right now. I have my own way. I practice my Judaism. But I've been taught the way in which I grew up, many Israelis are like this, as are Americans, that you act upon your beliefs, you protect your beliefs. And when a system's enshrined to create a secular yet also uh, uh, system that respects religion, or at least respects the belief of others, and in Israel, it respects Islam, it respects Christianity, it respects Judaism, and whatever other religions are practiced here. You try to be inclusive and act on your belief in what God teaches you. Or what the teachings of gods are, or, or you know, even if you're an atheist, you know, if we go that far, you still have the sense that your beliefs are protected. You act upon your beliefs of protecting other people. But when we talk about Hamas, as you read in the opening remarks in your first five, you have a charter that calls for the destruction of the other. The entire idea of Palestinian identity is based on the idea that Jews should not exist in Israel <laughs> and should be replaced by Palestinians. And until you break the will of that identity, until you get rid of the leadership that, who, who promulgate that idea, you will still have conflict. So while you may point it towards monotheism, I'm taking this from more of a policy point of view, right? How governments and politicians interact with the public and what the United States should do. Israel has to act on its belief in the Jewish state. The United States, which has always been Israel's greatest ally, must act on that alliance. And in doing so, they shouldn't just promote the Israel relationship and the fact that it should be able to exist as a state like any other state in the world, it needs to actively defend that relationship. And when that doesn't happen, you get to a situation like where we're at now, waiting for the fifth round of conflict with Hamas. As we say in our Christian faith, amen to that. You know, um, here in America, I was going to say, I, I, I do often defend the Judeo-Christian roots of America uh, because, among many things, a, pr a primary notion of that is that it actually gives freedom to everyone. It's not intended to be... Uh, Unlike what you're reading in the Charter of Hamas, unlike what many uh, jihadists say, their purpose is to impose Islam on everyone, whether you like it or not. Judeo-Christian ideas in the founding of America especially were a true uh, freedom of religion, respect for the right of the individual. You can change your mind every day what your faith is. Sorry, go ahead, sir. If I could just interject here something, there's actually something like 30 different Quranic, from the Quran, tenets that support Zionism. This is something that not many Muslim scholars like to speak about. But there's a very Zionist pattern of thought in the Quran itself. So that's something that not too many people like to discuss, but there's a great article that the founder of our institute, Daniel Pipes, wrote about the Quranic's belief in Zionism. So okay. if, I'll try to get that link to you. Oh, but please email me that. Yes, I love it. Yeah. Not just Islam, like Islam itself, whatever, you have interpretations of it, this and that. But you can get to the roots of Islam 
you would even say that Muslims should be calling, perhaps, for a Jewish state. Okay. On that extremely novel note, I have never heard that by Daniel Pice. I'm going to find that. If you sent it, it would be great. Um, and I so enjoyed talking with you, Jim. So glad you're available to join us. Thank you so very much, Greg Roman, for being in Israel and standing up for and, and really sharing with the world what's actually occurring over there and, um, and for writing the column you wrote in Newsweek. Very, very thoughtful, and I appreciate that so much. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, my friend. Well, that was pretty educational. Okay, uh, you know what? We're gonna. I am gonna find that column because I do think that you know. I I have a good friend who is uh, has is Christian, but he's read the Quran many times. He's studied it, and I'm gonna call him later and ask him if he knew about this. A passages in the Quran that in some way seem to support the right of Zion, the mission of Zionism or the establishment of the state of Israel, um, because I have not heard that. And obviously many passages in the Quran directly inscribe, in fact, they're written into the charter of Hamas. I didn't get that far into it, but they're written into the charter of Hamas, directing people, if they, or if they want to be considered devout Muslims, they must kill Jews whenever they see them. I mean, really that kind of language. So, uh, you know, the Quran is a vast compilation of many contradictory things. Um, and so I'm interested to hear what he's talking about. But um, I think in Israel and what they're dealing with today and wrapping up that interview, I think in the situation in Israel today, uh, you're really seeing the uh, modern era dealing with very ancient teachings in the Quran, the Islamic Jihadist movement that is called Hamas, uh, the, the Hamas organization dedicated to destroying Israel. And you have the state of Israel just as any other country in the world wants to survive, wants to live in peace, wants to have orderly society, and yet they live surrounded by enemies who would happily destroy them, not just the Palestinian, uh, the Hamas um, in, in, that is occupying Palestine, uh, the Palestinian area, the, the um, Gaza Strip, but other countries surrounding them. And so it's a, you know, it's a modern day carrying out of what um, ancient, uh, you know, kind of Middle East tensions have been since almost time began. But um, I'm hoping more and more education, more awareness of people recognizing that the battle is not between Israel and the Palestinians, it's between Israel and the terrorist Islamic jihadist organization called Hamas. That's where the battle is. Everybody honest enough to recognize that has got to recognize you stand with the country that's simply trying to defend their very existence. Okay, one last story I want to hit today. Okay, so this is very, very interesting. Um, so my husband and I went to a conference and we heard Bill Barr speak. Former Attorney General Bill Barr. And I have to tell you that, as you, if you listen to my show very often, you know, I was very disappointed in him because I actually believe when he came on as Attorney General under President Trump, he would truly, deeply dive in and get to the truth behind or the reasons behind all the bad actions uh, that led to the complete farce of the Russia collusion hoax that caused Americans, you know, untold millions of dollars and depositions and um, just headlines every day during the first three plus years, of the Trump administration, uh, all alluding to, oh yeah, pretty soon we're gonna figure out, pretty soon we're gonna know. It, it turned out there was no Trump-Russia collusion at all. Finally, Mueller's report had to say, there's nothing here. And believe me, we turned over every rock. We went, we went everywhere we could, there's nothing to this. That was the result of the Mueller report. And yet well, the hope, of course, when Bill Barr came along was he was gonna find out how in the world did this get started? Who are all the players inside the FBI and the Department of Justice who actually committed crimes 
in terms of falsifying information that led to the execution of FISA warrants, the application for FISA warrants, the execution of those warrants. Who are all these people? And actually bring them to criminal justice. That's what should have happened. And as we all know, it didn't. It didn't. It just kind of died. And people early on, when Bill Barr was appointed, said, you know, he's just going to ride it out. He's never going to bring anyone to justice. And I actually thought he would, and I was wrong. He, he did decide, apparently, to let the whole thing go. Um, so we, uh, and we also had Bill Barr, uh, who did not decide, who chose affirmatively not to take any action um, with respect to the, what people felt were very credible and, and widespread allegations of electronic election fraud in the 2020 elections. Bill Barr wouldn't look into it, you know, did, wouldn't take it seriously. So he had, in my head, even though I, I know he's done other years of great public service, he had two big, big, big strikes against him, two big strikes. But I heard him speak over the weekend, and this is the first speech he has given uh, since he left public life, since he left, uh, you know, he left, obviously not attorney general anymore, um, in private life, and he gave this speech, and I must tell you, it was among the most extraordinary speeches I've ever heard. I was sitting there at this very small gathering, um, and as I say, first time he's come out uh, to speak at all since uh, the time he left office, and I, I was, I had questions ready. I, I was going to jump up and say, what about this? What about this? Um, but I want to play, I, I sent Matt the Wonderful a very short clip, asked him to play a very short clip of the beginning of Bill Barr's speech. And I'll tell you, it was truly extraordinary. I'll let Matt the Wonderful play this clip. This morning, I want to take a few moments and, and talk about what I think is the, the greatest uh, threat to religious liberty in America today. And that's the increasingly uh, militant and extreme secular progressive climate in our state-run uh, educational system. Over the past 12 months, there's been a great deal of discussion about the, the radical ideology that's being promoted in our schools and what it means for our, our national unity. Much less has been said on the issue uh, of what it means, what the long-term consequences are uh, for religious freedom. This indoctrination in my right, uh, in, in my mind, is the greatest uh, threat that religious liberty faces today. We're rapidly approaching the point, if we already haven't reached the point, at which the heavy-handed enforcement of secular progressive orthodoxy through government-run schools is totally incompatible with traditional Christianity and other major religious traditions in our country. I must tell you, his basic point, and he, what he basically, he was being given an award for a defender of freedom of religion, and I actually had not been particularly familiar with his writings or thinking on that topic. But I did want to share it with you because it kind of it ties into some topics we're talking about today and also the broader issue what we fa that we face in America. I'll get to his speech in a moment, but I want to make this point that I, I, when I was listening to him, I was remembering having said this myself years ago in another context discussing uh, freedom of religion. In America, as we were just talking about with our previous guest, in America, we have you know, the First Amendment. We have freedom of religion. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise. There's two clauses, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. 
And basically it's saying, and the courts have said, you know, it means Congress and, and also any state government, you can't establish a religion. You can't say, you know, here in Texas, we're going to be Baptist. And here in some other state, we, you, you don't, the state can't establish a religion and they cannot in any way prohibit the free exercise of religion. That was the balance of the establishment of the First Amendment. What he, what he was speaking about and what has happened in America today is this rise of secularism. And it is a, there are many organizations, I became familiar with them uh, in the years we lived in the Washington DC area before we moved to Texas, became familiar with these groups. Uh, they have, we had the Freedom From Religion Foundation and we have the uh, organizations committed to the wall of separation between the government and religion, which is not in the Constitution. There's no wall of separation in the Constitution or in any of the Federalist Papers. It was a letter written uh, later after the Constitution was all established and in place, a letter written, I think it was by Thomas, whoever wrote it, Thomas Jefferson maybe, but basically wrote and said, you know, in response to a state legislature saying, hey, can we please create a religion in our state you make it an official state religion he said no there's the, you know you you've got to stay out of religion but anyway back to this point because secularism has become the uh, trendy thing and, and pushing secularism and pushing atheism it's important to get around to recognizing secularism and atheism we put them together secular being no God secularism and atheism need to be treated by the American public and by the courts as a religion in themselves, as a religion. They have all the hallmarks of religion. They have a set of beliefs about the nature of God, which is there is no God at all. There's no God at all. And they, they're not just saying, I personally choose to reject, you know, the existence of God. You, you can be an atheist if you want to in America. It's one of the beauties of America. But they're saying they are arguing it as an absolutely assertive fact. There is no God, and therefore they carry forth from that all sorts of other conclusions about the kind of policies they would create. And if you have no God, if you are a secular, you're an atheist, you're a secularist, you have no God, you have no source for turning to anything like morality or truth, ultimate truth, nature of reality, nature of life, nature of man, everything you think, everything you set out, everything you pursue in legislation, every way you assess policies is all based on worship of the human intellect, the human brilliant, you know, who are the most intelligent people. You, you put other people as gods, their human intellect to establish truth. And therefore you reject truth as coming out of the, the faith traditions of many people in this country, Jewish, Christian, and many other faiths. You reject that because your highest faith, your highest, your God is the human intellect. And all you're dealing with is the material universe. It's all you're thinking about. It's all you think exists. No sense of spirituality. No sense of a deeper identity of man as created by God and God's image and likeness. No sense of God as, as the creator creating his children, forming and molding them and giving his children identity. When you start down the path of saying no God exists and we just elevate human intellect 
and the material universe we see around us as the only reality there is, you necessarily reject anything about the idea of a spiritual nature of life, anything bigger, uh, more profound, more meaningful, more absolute. It just can't exist in your worldview if you are a committed secular atheist, a secularist. So now again, and this is what has happened. The secularists have not only established the religion of atheism, religion of secularism as their religion, but they use it as a, as a hammer, as a, you know, a bully pulpit to say, because they have established this, they get absolute protection from the Constitution because they're not pushing a religion because they're not religious. And so therefore, everything they get to say, they say, is unquestioned. Because it's not coming from the Catholic faith, the Baptists, the Lutherans, or any other, or the, or the Jewish faith. It's not coming from a faith. So they get unquestioned assertion of everything they believe. And they can't be challenged as violating the Establishment Clause because, after all, they're not really, you know, in the world's understanding a religion. The secular atheists are, have elevated themselves into the most powerful religion in our school system and in our country because they get away with saying we're not a religion at all. And they get credence for that. They get respect for that. They get, they get deference because of that. And they get to decide, then they, and because they are on this perch of, of their self-appointed intellectual, religious, theological superiority, they get to pick away at and denigrate any other teaching that has come out of our rich American cultural history that relates to God-given purpose, God-given identity, God-created God morality, a sense of morality and principles and values. They not only establish truth, the leftist, secularist, atheists, they establish their own truth, and they take moral authority or claim moral authority to say, anybody doesn't agree with us or comes up with some silly notion about morality arising out of religious doctrine or religious scriptures out of the Bible or out of the Torah, all of that is pushed aside because they are the superior ones and they can say, you can do that in your home, you can talk about it in your house, you can teach your kids that, but don't be coming around public schools and talking about this because your religion doesn't belong here. Our religion of secular atheism does. Compound that reality with the fact that we are living in the midst of a Marxist revolution in our country. Marxists, socialists, communists are dedicated to hatred of God. They must eliminate faith in the societies they take over. The point of why, why communists, socialists, Marxists, why they kill all the priests, they round up the priests, they round up the pastors, they destroy churches. China today, they're still literally bulldozing Christian churches and arresting Christians and putting them in camps. The reason they do this is because when churches, when theology, when a belief in God informs your worldview, you're not so easily malleable, moldable by the government. They can't just grab hold of you and say, here's the truth we're going to tell you, here's what you're going to believe, because you have a higher sense of truth and morality and identity and purpose in life. America was founded on the Judeo-Christian idea 
at, at the very beginning of the Declaration of Independence, all men and women have a creator, all created by God in his image and likeness. So that's the biblical term, image and likeness. We're all created by God. We have rights from God because we were born and the government exists to, to function only with the consent of the governed. Those very founding ideas of America are antithetical to every Marxist idea there is. Marxism cannot be inflicted on America with an America that holds on to those founding values of our Declaration and Constitution. So on a Bill Barr's speech, he was basically making the point that the secular atheists have had three phases. His description was three phases in America's history where they have slowly attempted to replace <clears throat> anything anything like the Judeo-Christian founding of America and replace it with their secular, the superiority of secular intellectual atheism and driving that whole faith view of life, a Christian worldview out of public acceptance in the public schools. So they have through this course, what he laid out, resulted in you have generations of children now who went through public schools or who are now adults who have no sense that the, the notion of America's founding included the idea that God exists and that men have rights because they, because they were born and because God gave them God-given rights because they're created by God. Those ideas in many young people's view are things that belong in church on Sunday or someplace, but certainly not in the public square. So on the Bill Barr, what he talked about was the first phase. He talked about you know this whole idea of what's happened in America's public education. The advocates of public schools agreed in the very beginning that religion was integral to such an education, that you couldn't educate children without having them understand religion. That we, you could, religion was integrally related to being able to teach a child or anyone else about life and truth. The second phase, so that was the kind of the beginning point uh, springing off of the founding of America. And that was true, he says, up until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and then talk about the 1970s. Many people uh, embraced uh, 1970s in public schools. Kids were still learning things. Uh, with a notion underlying acceptance, of course, you're allowed to talk about God and recognize the underlying premise of education is rooted in faith in God. Second phase of public school came in the latter part of the 20th century and his term, relentless campaign of secularization intent on driving every vestige of traditional religion from the public square. He says public schools became a central, the central battleground. You know, talk, we all know what happened in the public schools uh, where we had... Um, you know, driving out of, of any, any kind of recitation of prayer, mention of God, you know, all under the, as the left sells every other idea they have, all under the umbrella of saying, well, you know, uh, we have to be, it was kind of the early vintage thinking of inclusiveness. We have many different faiths here. You know, this doesn't really belong here. We're just here to teach. We're just here to have, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and we don't have to have any of this talk about God. It can be pushed aside, no prayer in public school, you know, begin punishing prayer in public school. That was the second phase. Third phase, he says, just in the last several years, we've entered phase three of public education. This is no longer secularization by subtraction, meaning no longer just taking God out of public school. Now it is, as he says, the affirmative indoctrination of children with a secular belief system and a worldview that is in itself a substitute for religion and is antithetical to the beliefs and values of traditional God-centered religion. This 
this uh, exalting of secularism, of atheistic secularism, uh, as to is now he's saying in public schools replacing the very exist the idea of religion. And he gives an example, we talk about in the show many times, these kind of stories, but kids now in some public schools in kindergarten are taught, they get a coloring book where they're gonna fill out and, say, and the opening instruction says, you know, actually uh, only you, little Johnny, little Timmy, little Susie, whoever, the, whoever your student, each student, only you can decide what your gender you are. Only you can decide your gender. Not your parents, not the doctor, not even your own body. Your body doesn't determine your gender, you decide. Now, for most people of faith, that is utterly antithetical to the idea of a creator, of God's creation, of, a, of man and woman. And yet, this kind of thing has not only made its way into public schools, it is, it is held up as an example of progress in America, because after all now, we're not imposing old-fashioned, silly Judeo-Christian values. We're imposing instead, you know, the enlightened worldview that there's no God and therefore no reason to consider the creation that God, God is a creator of our identity. We're just going to go with, hey, anything goes, whoever you think you are, that's who you are. So, Here's where we are. Uh, he went through a bunch of examples like that. And I, I've got to wrap up because I'm out of time for today. But I do want to say, I urge you to go to our website and read this. The article is called William Barr. It's a long title, but basically, he got a Defender of Freedom um, Award. Um, the Alliance Defending Freedom gave him a freedom of, of, an award for um, uh, as a longtime defender of freedom of religion. But it was a really profound and insightful um, reading of where we are and then of course where do you go from here he comes to the conclusion that we have reached the point we should end having any such thing as public education just eliminate that it's been too tainted too overtaken by the secularists too overtaken by the radical leftists who as i mentioned in this little segment a little while ago you have to understand the atheists, the secularists, the, the people who are just you know antagonistically atheistic, are have locked arms with, locked elbows with the Marxists who are taking over America. Marxism thrives and lives in, in among the main things that must accomplish is destruction of faith. So he's saying we can't let them continue doing this. His point was, you can have public tax dollars educating people, used for education, but just let it all go to the parents, let the parents choose the schools, get rid of this big public education apparatus that is at its core, simply enabling the Marxism taking over the country, enabling the atheism, the driving out of a God-centered, uh, a, uh, the culture of America and the freedom of religion of America, freedom of parents to teach their children religion and pass along their religious values and hope those children will hold on to those values as they mature into adults. It's the destruction of the American family and church being carried out right in front of our faces by the public education system. And he's talking about a shift. He doesn't say immediately, but a shift to getting away from even assuming we have to have a public education system instead of having tax dollars that are used to help parents find the school that their children can be taught in that, that, and free them from what the left has done to our public schools. I could say more, but I'm way past out of time. I'm out, as I do at the close of every show, 
I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today. Facebook removes a pro-Israel page with 77 million plus followers. Pro-Israel, Pray for Israel Facebook page operated by an American Christian um, has 77 million followers. Outbreak of Hamas's rocket attacks and Israeli response provokes an avalanche of vile and violent anti-Semitic comments on the Facebook page, quintessential hate speech that echoes the Holocaust. And what does Facebook do? Take down the hateful comments? No. Take down the pro-Israel website? Yes. With this message, we remove Jerusalem Prayer Team's Facebook page for violating our rules against spam and inauthentic behavior. These actions of Facebook are plainly and inexcusably anti-Semitic. These are the same people deciding everything that their users should know or not know. This is an example of the extreme danger posed by big tech censorship and totalitarian thought control. Americans need to drop Facebook, use alternative social media. And Bill Barr and state-run religion, former Attorney General Bill Barr's May 20th speech on religious freedom was, is must-reading, available at Alliance Defending Freedom and available at our website, americacanbetalk.org. Barr's review of educational history in the USA is thorough and accurate. Radical left is not just infringing on the free exercise of religion, it's pushing a de facto establishment of a state religion of atheism. America's DNA, America's very identity, coming from the Declaration of Independence, one creator, self-evident truths, God-given inalienable rights of men and women. Atheism is intellect and materialism untethered to any truth. They make up the truth, whatever they want the new truth to be. That's what atheists do. America's freedoms permit atheism, but atheism as a state-established religion will not permit America to continue. That is why alarm bells are sounding. The radical left's agenda is the destruction of America. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can you America Can We Talk, truth about America. Can